Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I am here with Jason. Hey, everyone. How you doing, my man? Doing well. About yourself? Limping to that finish line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Real life got you down. Real life got me down. A lot going on. Been busy at work. Fuck all that. Let's talk about movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my release. <laughs> I see you are dressed appropriately for the movie I we're am. talking I have about. Donned my Nightmare on Elm Street T-shirt mm. because we are wrapping up our series on movies about movies with Wes Craven's new nightmare. Yes, and we were being overseen by my signed poster from the original. Yes, and I'm lucky because I'm sitting on the side of the table where I get to stare at it the you whole get time. To see it, so, yeah. yeah, it's very, very enchanting. Mm. It's a great poster. I like it. Um. <laughs> Yeah, and this is 1994, and as the title suggests, is directed by the Wes Craven. Yes. Who we have somehow avoided talking about too much up to this point. Yeah, yeah. By accident. Right. It happens. Not by design. We do try to stray from the super mainstream stuff, so this is a little little slight departure, but it's all good. Yeah, it's a movie worth talking about. Mm -hmm. Especially with our ongoing 90s debate we've had the past Mm, little bit. Yes. Um, but, this is not changing my mind about the 90s. Oh, no. But first, we're going to do all our usual stuff. We're going to talk about what we've been watching. Um, I have a shout-out. Okay. So, I think by the time this episode drops, yes, um, there will be another Jacked Up Review Show episode that features one of us. Yay! Um, you can listen to an episode of me chatting with Cam about the different Blu-ray media companies and labels. Your uh, your arrow, your synapse, your vinegar syndrome, all that good stuff. So he probably cut it down from like eight hours <laughs> to two or something. Right? Oh man, I, I could have gone for forever <laughs> if he really wanted to, but um, yeah, he's he's got those the, the set times we got to try to keep mm-hmm. as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little dated. I think we recorded it a while ago, so I think because uh, I gave some shout outs to like some more obscure ones, right? And it's actually since we recorded it to now, there's other ones I would shout out ah. to give more love to that are like newer. But that's just it's the name of the game, yeah, that's what happens, baby. Man. You know how it is. You never know when things are gonna fall. Um, but yeah, if you wanna, if you're a collector, you like collecting movies, or you're interested in getting into it, go give that a listen. Show the Jacked Up Review Show some love. Mm-hmm. We love Cam. We love everything he's doing. Yeah, they have all kinds of stuff going on over there. So. Good stuff. It's crazy. Go give that a listen. I'll put it in the show notes. Otherwise, what have you been watching? Oh, okay. Well, um, I watched a couple things I want to talk, talk about. <clears throat> okay. I watched a documentary. Oh. Called King on Screen. Okay. Um, I think this came out last year. Uh, but basically, it is purportedly about. <laughs> purportedly. <laughs> well, okay. it, it's so it's about Stephen King adaptations in the film, right? So sure. they kind of start with Carrie and go through some of the bigger ones. Good topic. I mean, there have been so many, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to cover all of them. But. Uh, oh, you know, speaking of that, I saw that uh, he's stopping the. Um, What's the thing where he licenses out his stuff to people for really cheap? Oh, like a dollar or something? Yeah, a dollar, dollar baby or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're stopping that. Really? I wonder yeah. why. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. I think maybe so, the, someone's not making enough money along the way, or probably I think it was some like someone that's managing was managed that whole part. Like can't do it anymore, or mm. they're retiring, or mm. I, I really didn't care to look deep right. enough, but I, I saw that and I was like, oh, yeah, that's sad. Um. So yeah, it's in theory. It, it's good. The problem with this documentary is that it, it just, it barely touches on anything. Mm. Like it, it hits some of the high points. It spends way too much time on like Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. 
Because yeah. those are the big, you know, artistically valid, popular ones that everyone knows. And sure, it, it just, I mean, they are good <laughs> movies. I'm not saying they're oh, yeah, not. Yeah. For sure, uh, yeah. But it's like they barely talk about The Mist. They barely mm. talk about uh, anything kind of more interesting. And, and they only have good things to say about any of the movies. Oh, uh, okay. It's, it's a very positive, mm. like, Okay, so Mick Garris is one of the. I was about to say, is like an hour devoted to Mick Garris because not that much, but I mean, they spend way too much time on that Shining TV movie. Oh, that's garbage, dude. It is garbage. I'm sorry, (laughs) but there's no one there to say this Mm -hmm. isn't very good. Mm -hmm. You know, and I guess they want to be nice. They're celebrating King. Well, the thing is, is like you know, it's any director. I mean, we we got into that with uh, why don't you play in hell? They had the quote: "Sorry, you go long enough, you start making crap." Type thing, you know. So like. Yeah, that TV miniseries. I think it's terrible. You you clearly think it's not very good too. But like, McGarris has done some killer Stephen King adaptations. Yes, so. and he, and he's done some. He did Critters too, and I will forever be in his <laughs> yeah. debt for Critters too. He could have done nothing else, and that would solidify him <laughs> in our hearts. Yeah. So I mean, unless you're just like you know a, a King completist, you can probably mm-hmm. skip this. It's not going to tell you anything new. It's mm-hmm. not going to be that interesting. So it's not like a, uh, speaking of Elm Street, like a Never Sleep Again. Oh, God, no. Kind of See, and that's what, this should have been like six mm-hmm. hours. Yeah. And it could have covered almost everything. The best parts are probably Mike Flanagan. Mm. Um, he's kind of the guy now. He's probably the best, probably between him and Frank Darabont are the best Stephen King adapters. Uh, so that after watching this, it finally made me go watch Dr. Sleep. Because oh. for some reason, I just I have not watched it, which is weird because I love Mike Flanagan. I never have either. Um, I love the original Shining. Um, but for some reason, I just I didn't watch it. Um, so now I have. And I, I should have watched it earlier. It's, it's really good. <laughs> it's, it's really very good. Uh, I guess I'll have to watch it now. Yeah, I think you should. It, um, it does a really good job of paying homage to Kubrick's version mm-hmm. without like without giving like any spoilers or anything. There are actors recast. You mean the, I think as Stephen King put it, the car without the motor in it? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> uh, some actors are recast sparingly mm-hmm. to play like Jack Torrance and Wendy and stuff. Yeah. And it's done perfectly because they're not like trying to imitate the performances. They're mm-hmm. not trying to look just like them, but it's like close enough that it doesn't feel like a different character. And the actors do a really good job of, of approaching that. Um, it's that, not it's that, not a freaky grinning Harold Ramis, right? Right, yeah. They didn't do some <laughs> stupid CG crap. They just recast it, you yeah. know. And it's a great scene between um, grown up Danny and and Jack. Mm. So they're at the bar mm-hmm. when Danny finally gets back to the Overlook, and Jack is now the ghost, you know, serving drinks mm. and stuff like the that. bartender. Yeah. yeah, it's a great scene. It's it's really well done. Mm. Um. It's a two and a half hour running time, which usually I'm no, <laughs> but uh, it, it, this movie kind of needs it. I haven't read the book. I haven't read King since the nineties, honestly. Mm. Uh, but uh, it feels like the right length and all the actors are really good. Uh, Ewan McGregor, <laughs> I kept expecting him to, cause you know, he has the shining and sometimes it's almost like the force. Oh, I yeah. kept expecting him to whip out a lightsaber <laughs> or something. <laughs> I mean... Do enough cocaine, and I'm sure that's where the story goes, right? <laughs> right. So if you, like me, for some reason, had not watched Doctor Sleep, go watch it. And I had recently rewatched The Shining. Mm. So it was kind of fun going directly into this from that. So Neato. I recommend it. 
Cool. Yeah. How about you, man? What have you been watching? Well, I got to talk about a few things. Some I'm going to shoot through here quick. So, um, the day we're recording this, Netflix's live action Yu Yu Hakusho series has debuted. Okay. Now, of course, this is interesting because it's in the wake of the One Piece live action. So, some might say we're going into like this weird renaissance of like anime live action adaptations. Um, I'm going to say maybe not the Yu Yu Hakusho one. I got to be honest. One of my favorite animes of all time, still to this day. Live action is bad, dude. Like, oof. Is it? I'm not familiar uh, with this one. It's got a cool vibe to it, man. Because it's like, it's, it's this kid, Yusuke, and he's kind of like your typical like high school delinquent punk. Mm-hmm. And he's got a heart of gold, though, like underneath his tough exterior. And he sacrifices himself one day to save a kid, a little kid that's playing with a soccer ball from getting ran over with a car. D- dude driving crazy down the road. Sure. And he dies. But because of that one act of kindness, the spirit world, it's kind of, it's a very like Asian concept of like an afterlife mm-hmm. where they have like the, the Oni and stuff. Um, but um, kind of like one of the people there decides to give him a second chance at life if he can prove himself worthy. And in doing so, he becomes a spirit detective and he's kind of tasked with dealing with demons that escape into the human world or spirits that don't want to move on or things like that. Mm, okay. And then that escalates into your typical shonen anime thing of big shirts off, fist fighting, brawling. Sure. Save the day. Okay. Super basic premise, super fun. Um, it really rides on like the characters are so good and so like their interactions and their development and how they change as the story goes. And where this live action fumbles is it is ultra rushed. Like mm. um, if you see people saying that the One Piece live action is rushed, this is like maybe quadruple speed. Mm. In the span of five 50-minute episodes, they cover like the whole first season and a big chunk of a subplot from the second season okay. of the anime, which is like we're, we're getting into like 50-some episodes at that point. So mm. Mm. Need more time to breathe, huh? The travesties. A lot of the characters feel like not... Not on par, not on like not right, just like mischaracterized, I would say. Um way too rushed. They cut out whole complete story arcs that are like, to me, I would consider them essential because it's like the buildup of their characters. Right. And like, there's a core crew of four that he ends up with. It's like him. It's originally his rival from another gang and they become friends. And then two demons from the spirit world that they like capture early on. And then they kind of get reformed and join the team to help him. And they just have this great, like they're all enemies originally, but then turn allies by happenstance. And they get this cool, like, dynamic to them hmm. and it's just not there man so okay. big fail on that you can skip that then i would say skip it uh see if you like it i guess um if you've never seen it at all though and you have any interest from just the trailer of the thing go check out the anime because the anime is incredible cool. uh holds up even to this day next thing i want to touch on um just to sh- throw this out there because why not i'll be very brief on this i watched a hallmark movie Tiffany surprised me with this because I had known about this. Bruce Campbell has done some Hallmark movies as of late. Yeah. Like you do. Make a few bucks. Why not? Hey. So I watched from 2022, My Southern Family Christmas. It's a very by-the-numbers Hallmark thing. You've got a a young woman who is an aspiring writer for like a travel magazine. Mm -hmm. And she's estranged from her father. He kind of left when she was little and they they never reconnected. And... Mm -hmm. Um, she gets assigned this writing thing for the magazine because they're big Christmas special issue. Mm-hmm. And she goes to Georgia to do this whole thing about um, 
like their version, like the Cajun version of Santa Claus with its own mythos and stuff. And, and then wouldn't you know it, that leads her to finding her father who is played by Bruce Campbell. And so she gets to like reconnect with him and see what's up with him without revealing who she is because she's just there as like a reporter. Oh, okay. Um, and they go well, through it's a good thing he's not playing Ash because yeah. he probably would have been hitting on her. <laughs> uh, and, and they go through all the beats of like, uh, you know, there's like a very hunky boy who's the town record keeper and he just magically falls in love with her mm-hmm. and is trying to help her. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, you get the all is lost moment where she wants to like tell her dad, that's okay, I'm your daughter that mm-hmm. we've been estranged from. But she's like, oh, maybe like his life's good now and I shouldn't be in it because it'll complicate it. So I should just run away and leave everything and... And then it's got the happy ending where they they all reveal it and they're happy and they're a family and blah blah blah. When did the Deadites attack? <laughs> um, never. Oh. Yeah, it does feel like it could be some weird like pseudo sequel where like shit calmed down and Ash <laughs> yeah. just went and settled down, changed his name. Um, but but it's it's harmless. If you need a Christmas movie, it's maybe a better one you could reach for just because it's got Bruce Campbell in there yeah. and he makes everything better. Uh, it is very heartwarming. Like he does bring the emotion on the whole, like uh, his, his character has a lot of regrets about the way he was like first as a father. He's an underrated actor. Um, I've he, always said he can that. bring the emotion, I think. And mm-hmm. you get to see him pretend to do a Cajun accent, which is super fun. <laughs> All right. Hopefully it's better than Wilford Brimley's <laughs> hard target. <laughs> Whatever. It's harmless. Um, and then last thing, to shoot through here, I've been creeping into more of that Arrow uh, Shaw Brothers Volume 2 box set. Cool. I said I was going to finish that this year. I have not. I have failed you. Well, it's quite long. I shall eviscerate myself upon this table. <laughs> That's the only honorable finish. thing to do. Um, so I'm going to rocket fire through some of these. So Return to the 36th Chamber, the follow-up to the original one mm-hmm. that was very awesome. Didn't care for it. It was super goofity. No stakes. Yeah. They kind of just tried to make it a comedy. Was not amused. Uh, the follow-up to that, the third one, Disciples of the 36th Chamber... I like this one a little better. It's still like it kind of tried to combine the prior two, the one that was very good and serious, and then the one that's completely goofy. It's hard to do kung fu comedy, um, right? And so it's just middling. I, I didn't care for it. However, then I braved a third one. And this, speaking of comedy and done right, I checked out from 1979 Mad Monkey Kung Fu. That's a great title. Which was fucking ridiculous, fucking awesome. Definitely a must watch if you are into. Kung Fu, martial arts movies, Shaw Brothers stuff. I'm pretty sure that's streaming on the uh, on the Arrow. It but, may be since you know. they since they have the rights to it. But yeah, it's just like it's this brother sister duo. They do this whole stage play thing with martial arts about the Monkey King, that whole mythos. Uh, a crime lord falls in love with the sister, wants to get her away from the brother so he can have her all to himself, and he uh, tricks the brother into getting drunk and then accusing him of causing chaos and raping his wife. Hmm. They kind of stage it together. Mm-hmm. And um, so in the end, to spare him being killed, the sister agrees to be the gang lord's like, concubine. And then also they maim the brother's hand so he can never use his deadly martial arts ever again. Oh, no. uh, and then we get a time skip, and he's like this miser who's a merchant now, just kind of scraping by. And he has this little like dancing act he does with a pet monkey. Mm. And then he meets a young orphan street punk named Monkey, because he acts like one. And they kind of cross paths and end up teaming up together. And he teaches him his monkey fist style so they can eventually bring down the uh, the criminals plaguing their city, mm-hmm. which in a big loop around turn out to be the servants of that original crime lord at the start. Dun, dun, dun. And it's got all the stuff you want. It's got the long training segment. It's mm-hmm. got the like initial fight and then they go away and come back. Uh, where it's good, though, is like the choreography is fucking on point on this one, like mm-hmm. crazy good. 
where they have the monkey theme for everything. There's tons of like acrobatics and flips and the final battle is like the younger guy has been trained up now and he's ready, but then the main dude comes too to support him. And so they do this like duo fighting and tandem thing where they'll like spin around one another and flip over one another. And it is like fucking amazing fight choreography. Cool. I was super impressed. I'll check this one out. So yes, give that one a watch and I'll have to go into overtime into the new year to finish this set. Nice. I have faith in you. Sure. I'm glad someone does. Right, so today we are talking about Wes Craven's New Nightmare from 1994. The to date, I guess, final actual Nightmare on Elm Street film, unless you want to count the remake. You don't count Freddy vs. Jason? Oh, true, yeah. I always mm. forget that. Hmm. But yep. didn't we establish earlier that that's more of a Friday the 13th film? It feels more like one, It yes. does, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll say the last uh, solo outing. Yeah. For Freddy. Yeah. Um, yeah, 94. Oh, my God. I think I mentioned this before, <laughs> but that was the year I graduated. <clears throat> um, and one of the things that strikes me, because this came out on the 10-year anniversary of the first one. And 10 years doesn't seem like such a long time now. But it was like an eternity back then. Dude, I still think the 80s is like 10 years ago. And then people <laughs> remind me how far it actually is, and I just get fucking depressed. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so weird how many movies came out and how Freddy evolved mm-hmm. in just 10 years. Because he went from you know surprise horror hit, mm-hmm. and it was a serious, dark, low-budget movie, to, I mean, he was... <laughs> Freddie was as big as MTV, you know, right. he was huge. He was a pop culture phenomena by the time fourth, the fourth one came around. Mm-hmm. And then he was a joke just two movies later with Freddie's dead. <laughs> and then this comes out and people are like, what? I remember it was a very confusing, weird mm-hmm. <laughs> journey, <laughs> but I did go see this in the theater. Wow. And, um, oh yeah. Um, it's not one I revisited very often. I think I may have seen it. In total, maybe twice in my life. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting going back to revisit it. Yeah, I um, I don't think I saw this when it came out. I was probably a little too young to go see it in theaters, but uh, probably just in the course of when you started doing like, oh, let's go through all the slashers, I eventually got to it. And I remember initially I loved it. I thought it was like the best sequel mm. of all the set. You were young and stupid, weren't and you? And then <laughs> go back to it, you know, a few years later, and I'm like, mm, I don't know about it now, and... That's kind of the story of my life with this film is I'll every few years go back to it and sometimes I love it more and then sometimes I don't like it that much at all. And well, there's really a lot to like. Mm-hmm, there is. It, it sounds like we're being negative from the get-go, but there's a lot to like in this movie. <laughs> this is like a five-star film trapped in... <laughs> it, it's wearing like clothing of a lesser film Yeah. that sometimes like you, you get a peek at the, the what's under there and it's great and then other times you're like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, uh, but we'll maybe unpack that as we go. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you have a synopsis, or would you like me to hit you with one? Oh, you do it, man. Hit me, hit me. 
it's nearing the 10th anniversary of the film A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's hilarious. Discovered that. We just said. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the stars, Heather Lankenkamp, is being scared by a voice on a phone, sounding very similar to the film's villain, Freddy Krueger. When Heather realizes that Freddy has now entered the real world, the only way to defeat him is to become Nancy Thompson once again. Mm. Um, a very meta premise. Yes. For the time, it was pretty pretty out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it was outside the box. Especially for horror, I would say. Yes. And it's interesting that this, and we'll talk more about this later, I'm sure, but this predates Scream. Right. It's obviously Wes Craven's kind of dry run for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, here's the kernel that then blossomed yeah. into that. Well... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so what genre is this? Well, this is horror, man. Straight up. Straight up horror. Uh, IMDb says it's fantasy horror mystery. Sure. sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a horror film. Uh, falls in the slasher category as well. Mm-hmm. And I think Supernatural like, slasher. Oh, yeah, true. I guess if you have to get specific, mm-hmm. which he, we do. He's not just a guy no. running around. Uh, yeah. He's actually something more than we've ever seen before. Freddy's a whole different thing in this. Even more than what he was Mm. one film ago. Let's get into it. And I I think, too, just to end up on the genre thing, like we should put meta horror as well. Sure. Which, as you brought up, this is like postmodern, supernatural slasher horror. Post horror, (laughs) math horror. (laughs) So we begin with a visual reference to the beginning of the original Elm Street film, the classic opening. Someone who kind of looks like Freddy, looks like he's building this sort of robotic knife hand yeah. thing. Um, and it looks gnarly. Yeah, it does look gnarly. It's a cool design. It's like a uh, fleshy, mechanical, kind of bio-engineered looking thing. Yeah, it's like if Cronenberg came up with this. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like flesh and metal fused together. Right. Um, so then the guy, who we think is Freddy, right? chops off of his own hand to replace it with the robotic one. Mm, yeah. But here we find out that this is just a movie being made, being directed by Wes Craven himself. Haha, the magic of filmmaking. They have fooled us. <laughs> and yeah, it's like Wes Craven playing himself, mm. directing. And, you know, I actually like that little, it's it's minor, but I love the idea of him cutting off his hand and replacing it with this robotic claw thing. Yeah. It's just, that's freaking cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's hardcore, man. Heather Langenkamp is there on set because she's starring in the movie. Yeah, they're making a, a new nightmare. They're making a new nightmare. And she's there with her son, Dylan. Mm-hmm. Played by Miko Hughes. Who's who, already kind of a little bit of horror royalty. Yeah, speaking he, of Stephen King earlier. Yeah, he played Gage in Pet Cemetery. Um, And uh, he's she's also there with uh, her husband, who is the special effects artist. His name is Chase. Which, interestingly, I'll just go ahead and bring this up now. Do it. Uh, her actual husband is a special effects artist. That's right. And they asked him to be in the film, and he was kind of like, no one wants to see me in this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should just find someone else. <laughs> exactly. What was his name? I'm trying to um, David Leroy Anderson. There we go. Okay. Yep. Uh, so it's kind of cool how West was taking details of her life and intertwining them in this movie. Yeah, because that's essential to the like makeup of this film, I think. It is. Um, so uh, Chase is showing his kid the robot glove and everything, and it kind of starts moving on its own. Mm-hmm. Like there's like a radio interference or something, and it's malfunctioning. It nicks him a little bit. Yeah. And uh, then it kind of comes to life, and it's like starting to 
clatter around like yeah, thing and all and over it, the table. Like spider crawls with the blades. Yeah. And it starts killing fuckers. <laughs> yeah, it just starts fucking eviscerating people. There's these two uh, special effects techs. And it like claws one of them in the throat. And the other one gets it in the chest, I believe. It's cool, dude. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But it's just a dream. All a dream. Two fake out beginnings already. Double fake out. Yep. Uh, Heather wakes up. And there's an earthquake shaking her house. Which we learned that there's been a lot of earthquakes lately. Yes. Going on. Which creepily... Coincided with real earthquake that hit at the time that they were filming. Mm-hmm. Like a big one. It's almost as if even the production itself was channeling something. Ooh. So they get a lot of production value out of this. Later on, we'll see like a lot of damage yeah. from the actual earthquake. <laughs> and it's like, hey, perfect. Um, let's see. Oh, but the neat thing, too, is that morning as they're kind of taking stock of things, um, Chase has a cut exactly on his finger where it happened in the dream. Right. And she, it kind of gives Heather a pause. Yeah. But she doesn't really say anything about it. Yeah, and he's like, oh, it probably happened when the glass broke, the frame fell, you know, yeah. during the earthquake. She's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, that sounds right. But yeah, so we're taking stock of their things. You know, Heather's kind of just looking after Dylan mostly. She's not doing a ton of, like, film at the moment. Uh, Chase has his special effects stuff going on. Um, and we learned that Heather's kind of been going through a rough patch lately because she has this stalker that keeps calling her. She does. Pretending to be Freddy and just saying shit to her and it's creeping her out. Mm-hmm. Which in another moment of Wes being like fucking brilliant madman, apparently Heather actually had a stalker in real life. Yep. That haunted her for a while. And amusingly enough, it was not a Freddy fan. It was a fan of the sitcom Just the Ten of Us. Wow. That Heather Camp was in, along with two other Elm Street actresses. He was pissed <laughs> that the show got canceled huh. and started stalking Heather. It's amazing. Like, it's her fault. Yeah. Yeah. So, it wasn't some Freddy obsessive fucker. <laughs> it was some sitcom obsessed fucker. Which, but, but you know, you can just see that he had to have probably sat down with her and been like, hey... Can we like weave right. this? Is it okay the, to yeah. use this? Yeah. It also reminds me of Adrian King and her mm, her yeah. stalker, which is even a scarier story. It's terrifying. Um, yeah, so Dylan, he's like having his gross looking oatmeal or whatever it is. <laughs> but he's kinda he's kinda made a face that looks like Freddy in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um Just more little ominous tick marks to think about. Yep. Uh so Chase, he's gonna go away for a couple of days to work on a commercial. Mm-hmm. And he leaves, and there's suddenly an aftershock from the earthquake, and these four cracks appear in the wall that look yeah. very much like a slash from you know Freddy's glove. And I feel like it's supposed to give you that vibe of like you you could think back to the old film and the part where he's like breaching through the wall, right? Yeah, like yeah. It, it immediately like calls your mind back to those. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so she goes downstairs and Dylan is watching the original Nightmare on Elm Street, the actual movie on the TV. And Heather like turns it off and he's like entranced by it. Then he lets off this really obnoxious loud scream. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. That is a good way. Uh, and the phone rings and yeah, it's her stalker. Someone imitating Freddie's voice, harassing her. Um, there's another aftershock. <laughs> and the doorbell rings, freaking Heather out, but it's the babysitter. Julie, kind of like babysitter slash her assistant, I guess. Yeah, it seemed, it seemed like a personal assistant. Yeah. Played by Tracy Middendorf. Yes. 
so she's talking about the, sl- the stalker and all this stuff. And uh, in a deleted plot point, Julie was supposed to be the stalker. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Like she was obsessed with Heather and stuff like that. And she was oh. the one who was stalking her. Whoa. I guess it's a little too much for the film. Yeah. 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 I can see why they cut that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this limo driver comes to pick up Heather. She's going to this interview. Oh, and I love this limo driver because he's really sleazy. He's kind of sleazy. Yeah. And it's supposed to like build on the stalker thing. Like, is it he the stalker? Yeah, maybe? So, yeah right. Red herring. Yeah. It, it almost becomes like Jolly-esque for a moment where you're like, is it him? Mm-hmm. Could it be him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, even that written mind, maybe he's the stalker. <laughs> and he, of course he recognizes from the movies mm-hmm. and he's talking about it. I love that she just rolls the window up on him. <laughs> yeah. He's like, they never should have killed Freddy. She's like, Zzz. Um, I just want to say, yeah. I'll set this up here now. Heather is gorgeous in this. She film. looks great. Yeah, yeah she, she looks, looks fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Needed to be said. Okay. They need to be said. You're absolutely right. But yeah, she's going to shoot a, a little like TV, TV thing on like, <laughs> yeah, a so talk you, show. You just reminded me of her line from the first movie where she talks how she looks 20 years old. Oh yeah, because she had the gray hair and stuff like that. <laughs> Like when you're like 17, 20 seems so old. But here, I guess she would have, she's probably pushing 30 by mm-hmm. this time, I guess. Which when I saw this movie, you think, yeah, that's that's kind of old. And, and now it's like, oh my God, she's young. You know, <laughs> she's young and gorgeous. It's so Still. weird. Time. Fuck time. Oh God. Whoa. Fuck my microphone. It's just going to make it to the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she's being interviewed. And yeah, it's like a talk show. It's a talk show type thing. Yeah, and there's a bunch of Freddy fans in the audience. People dressed up like him. Um, and she gets asked a question during this that I thought was interesting because the host wants to talk a little bit about um, kind of the idea that some people say like uh, you know, these films have an influence on people mm-hmm. that kind of like a negative impact on the people that watch them. The the, the old that old Colonel. That was a very big discussion in the 90s, of course. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that scene in Tenebrae. Yeah. When the critic is talking to the writer about, oh, this just makes people want to kill people. It's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure Wes Craven dealt with enough of that shit. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so they're like, oh, we got a surprise for you. And Robert England as Freddy <laughs> comes out. And man, he is working the crowd yeah. as only Robert England can. Listen, I, I can't. Re- I've seen the documentary Never Sleep Again. I don't know if they talked about this, but this this scene could not have been scripted. I'm sure they just dressed him up and was like, "Go be Freddy." Oh yeah, and then he just like ad libbed this whole scene. Yeah, I'm sure he just slipped <laughs> right into the character. But it's so cool seeing him in the original costume and makeup and yeah. everything, even if it's not really the character in the movie. You know, it's still Robert England playing Freddy, and I'll take that any day yeah. of the week. It's, he's working the crowd. He comes over to Heather and is, like, waggling the, yeah. the, the knife blades. And, of course, he has to use that line, you're all my children now. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so after that, we see Robert England out of makeup. Yeah, they're done with all, the shoot. Looking all cool and dapper, like Robert England. Nice, sleek, yeah. uh, black outfit going mm-hmm. on. And they get a call from New Line offices that Bob Shea wants to talk to her. Yep. I love how meta this gets. Everyone just playing <laughs> themselves. It's great. <laughs> so she goes to the offices, talks to Bob, and he wants her to be in the new Freddy movie. Yep. He says, we're going to bring him back. Yep. The fans have been clamoring for it. Just like she was dreaming. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making a new Freddy movie. Uh, yeah, he says, Wes wants to make one. He had a good idea. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says that he had, Bob says that he hasn't heard from Wes in like 10 years, um, but was just called out of the blue. Uh, but he said he hadn't called him because Wes said he hadn't had a nightmare in like 10 years. And that was kind of the fuel for mm-hmm. the original film. Yeah. and Which is both a true fact and then also right. a plot point. Uh, so Heather's being kind of like, oh, I don't know. You know, I kind of left that part behind me. And he was like, he kind of spills the beans that her husband has been working on the glove unbeknownst yeah. to her. Yeah. Just like in her dream. Because he decided if I'm getting Heather, I might as well hire him for the special effects. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it, keep it all in the family there. Yeah. And uh, like his phone rings and he doesn't answer it. And she's like, are you afraid to answer the phone? You know, like like uh, suggesting perhaps he has a stalker or he's been having nightmares. Yeah. Real ominous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Always good to see Robert Shea. <laughs> oh, so Heather gets back home and Dylan's screaming yet again. He does a lot of screaming in this movie. He does. And it, it's pre- get ready for this. Pretty fucking obnoxious. It no is. offense to him. It really is. Kids can't help it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, their their screams and cries are supposed to get your attention. That's the whole point. It's the way it's the way same same way a cat can be so it's, annoying. It's a survival mechanism. Yeah. Um, so she runs in. He's having some kind of a fit, and he's like spazzing out on the floor, and he's saying "Never sleep again." And he's got his stuffed dinosaur Rex there. That's got four four claw marks on yeah. him. Yeah. We get a little uh, like info lore kind of about this, which is that. Uh, he says that Rex protects him, mm-hmm. keeps the the bad man away. Yep. He puts him down at the bottom of his bed, and that repels the right the the, the guy that's after the, him. The old mean man, I think he calls him. Yep. This is some old mean man. Mm-hmm. And we get this sweet moment where Heather's like, "Oh, we'll we'll, we'll fix Rex. We'll patch him up and take care of him." Yep. And uh, Heather calls Chase. He's like, "Come home." You know, Dylan's acting all weird and shit. Yep. And Chase is like, well, I, I can't. Chuck and Terry haven't come in. And those were the effects guys who got killed in Heather's dreams. Yeah. No one knows where they are. More ominousness. Yep. And like we see him working. He's got the, the new glove he's working on there. And, and it's the glove from her. the dream. Yeah, and it's the yep. glove from the dream. And we're kind of panning away as she's talking to him. And uh, she says, Don't Dylan's acting like Freddy. So Chase leaves and we pan back and the glove is gone. Yeah. Where'd that glove go? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Also, I love how he just like fucking leaves too. Yeah, he's, he's like, like, fuck it. He's like, I gotta go. Uh, wife's in trouble. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what are we gonna do? He's like, I gotta go. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, so meanwhile, Heather is reading Hansel and Gretel Dylan. And I like this because it's very much like a callback to the first film where you have the scene in the classroom. Mm. Where they're, they're talking about the story and how that's kind of like a parallel right. to the plot. And then here, Hansel and Gretel become sort of a parallel to the plot as well. Quite true. Uh, Heather doesn't want to finish it because it's too violent. Yeah. But Dylan has a good memory and kind of recites the rest. <laughs> he says it's important to finish the story. You always have to finish the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's showing Heather that Rex is sewed up. I think Julie had sewed Rex up. Yeah, I think she helps yeah. and takes care of it. And yeah, he's under the covers and he keeps the mean old man with claws away. And kind of at this point, uh, I don't think Heather's like jumped to the supernatural yet. No. It's more she just thinks he finally saw a nightmare on Elm Street. Right. And to see his mother in the film, yeah. it's like traumatized kind of him. And him. Maybe there's 
those questions again about like, do these films impact the children? Right. That's kind of hanging over her a little bit. So we see Chase driving home at night, trying to stay awake. And this always reminded always reminded me of the scene from Part Five. Yes, I was going to bring that up. I'm Dan in the truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the coolest fucking sequences in any Elm Street movie, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I know that Five's not the best sequel, but like, damn, that part is crazy. It is crazy, and I actually like Five quite a bit. I it, do too. It has its issues, but I love that sequence when he's Oof. on the motorcycle and everything. God damn, <laughs> that was cool. Um, so he's trying to stay awake, and we get some kind of CG action going. The claws yeah. are coming up out of the seat. Um, and he's kind of waking himself up again, but then the whole hand pops out and cuts him right in the chest, stabs him in the chest and he crashes. And then that seems to kind of mess with Dylan. It's almost like he senses that it happens or something. Yeah. Yeah. Back at their house, Heather's waking up. Um, I think they're both having bad dreams. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Dylan said that Rex was fighting somebody. Woke him up. Uh, cops are at the door. We do get an overused dolly zoom here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do. <sighs> Tools of the trade, one yeah. might say. Um. So, yeah, they tell her Chase is dead. And she wants to see his body. So she goes to the morgue. And this is interesting, too, because they, they only show her the head at first. And, and she's like, I want to see the whole body. Yeah, she goes there. And there's there's like bodies on gurneys like in the hallway. I mean, yeah. there's just bodies everywhere. <laughs> and it's funny because the guy's like, well, you're not going to see that in the casket. And she's like, no, I want to see the whole body. Mm-hmm. And she, she whips up the cloth to reveal the big claw marks all yeah. down his chest. Four claw marks. And then she ralphs. <laughs> um, so then we get a nice funeral scene. Mm-hmm. With some cameos from some oh, of the yes. actors. Yes, we get some uh, veterans of the franchise in there. All too fleetingly, if you ask me. Let's see. So we have Tuesday Night, who took over the role of Kristen mm-hmm. in Part 4, which is probably the craziest Elm Street film. I love it. It's oh, almost it's, my favorite sequel. It's nuts. I saw that so many times when I was a teenager. <laughs> it's so watchable. So many times. And we get Jason Garcia, yeah. who was in the original Elm Street. And the real fun fact on this, you'll you if you watch that documentary, you get this. But um, Wes wanted to get Johnny Depp, and mm. it's this whole funny thing where he was like, "Oh, I'm not even going to call him because he's too big now. Why would he do this for me?" Mm-hmm. And then after the fact, they interview him, and he's like, "I would have totally done it. I, <laughs> I'm so appreciative for Wes for my role in that film and everything else, and it was the start of my career." And- if he showed up for that commercial cameo <laughs> thing in part. Six, you think he would have showed up just for the funeral scene or something? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those things. At that time, he was just like big, big star, and like just like the height of everything. And now, like it's more like we've seen who he is, and like dude fucking carries his Jack Sparrow costume everywhere, so he can go like visit a hospital and see kids and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, I think he he's a problematical person in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, but for also, sure. I mean, it's it's cool of him to go to the hospitals and do that shit. Mm-hmm. You know. Anyway, um. Very devoted to the films he's done, I guess yes. is what I want to say. Yes. So the wind starts blowing and the ground kind of shakes a bit and the coffin starts to tilt and Heather's like jumping down and the coffin like opens up. Pretty traumatic uh, little event, yeah. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. And she sees Freddy's in there. Oh, you know, before this though, there is one other person there we should talk about. Well, he shows up here in a second. Oh, yeah. yeah. More prominently. So yeah. sure, yeah, we'll, we'll carry on. Yeah, but Freddy's in the coffin. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, he's got Dylan, right? Or something like yeah, that? Yeah, because Dylan was like near the, the yeah. casket and fell in. Uh, so she runs down there to grab him, fight Freddy, get Dylan back. But then she's waking up. It was a dream. She'd fallen and hit her head. Yep. And But who's comforting her? None other than the John Saxon. John motherfucking Saxon. Who, of course, played her father. Mm-hmm. Who is now playing the ultimate role of John Saxon. <laughs> <laughs> but he says that you hit your head. You know, you passed out for a minute. And I love seeing John Saxon in this. I've always been a huge John he's Saxon. He's so charming. Fan. Just he's Even great. for a second, he's yeah. on the point. Uh, so later that night, Heather wakes up to Dylan watching Elm Street again. <laughs> who, who keeps playing this movie? <laughs> Was it like an AMC Fear Fest going on right now or something? <laughs> Must be. <laughs> We've got Nightmare on Elm Street on the hour, every hour, <laughs> for this week. So it looks like Dylan's kind of sleepwalking, mm-hmm. and when Heather wakes him, he has another annoying loud scream, and he's doing the whole one, two, Freddy's coming for you thing. Yep. Um, she's like, did you get that from the movie? He says, no, he heard it from the bed. He said, like, little girl singing it, and the mean old man he saw trying to get into our world. Yeah. And when we pan over to the TV, was unplugged the entire time. Ooh. Um, but she ends up kind of confiding in John Saxon about what's been going on. Her fears about uh, what's going on with this whole Freddy thing and the mysterious deaths and the earthquakes and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like met him at a, at, a, at a playground. Yeah. And Dylan's playing around. Um, now, I love that. In this, you know, hyper reality, she she confides in John Saxon. He is like a surrogate yeah. father figure in real life. You he know, he in is being, being the father figure that he played in the film. That's yeah, great. But uh, he suggests that uh, she goes and gets like medical help because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's probably just like you know stress or something. You just need to see a therapist, get Dylan checked out, see if there's anything wrong with him. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, Dylan is climbing to the very top of this like jungle gym thing. Yeah, this is a pretty uh, harrowing scene. And he's like reaching out to the sky. <laughs> and they finally notice him. And Heather runs over and he's falling. And she catches him. And uh, Dylan has a line where he says, like, God wouldn't take him. Because mm-hmm. earlier they were talking about how God took Chase. Right. You know, but he said God didn't wouldn't take Dylan. Just sad. That's some big shit for a little kid. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the next day Heather is like out checking the mail and we get like another visual reference at least I think it is to the, to the first movie because behind her is her white picket fence with like red roses yeah it's weird it's like her home starts to morph yeah. into her home from the film like there's some little hints here and there yeah. Which it goes even further later but mm-hmm. yeah um, she gets another threatening letter uh, looks like it has like an E on it uh-huh. like someone scribbled this big E out of like dirt or poop or something. I don't know. <laughs> poop. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Freddie's like, this will show her. I'm going to poop on this letter. Yeah. Take that bitch. And, uh, so she puts it in the drawer with a bunch of others. Yeah. She's just keeping these, <laughs> keeping all the poop letters. Oh yeah. Maybe that's supposed to set up that she, this has been happening a lot. Right. So, right. Uh, I, I like it cause it makes a like multi-play thing where it's like, at, at this point you could still go, is it Freddie? Or is this just a film about like she's become kind of mentally disturbed, yeah. or is it someone the, tra- the trauma, with her. or yeah. yeah, or is it actually a legit like stalker that's going to the extreme? <laughs> a combination of all three. Yeah. Um, 
So she gives Robert England a call, and mm. he's busy painting. <laughs> Again, probably not scripted. Yeah. They're like, do whatever you would do. Well, I'm going to paint. Uh-huh. So she's talking about how she's having dreams about Freddy. And he's kind of like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> and he's like, is it like me, Freddy? And she's like, no, no, this Freddy's different. Yeah. And he kind of finishes her sentence and he says, yeah, he's like darker, more evil. And she's like, well, how did you know that? <laughs> he's kind of staring off in the distance at this, at this time. Um, and he says that he was talking to Wes and asked him how the script's going. And Wes said that he's uh, said he's as far as he he's as far as Dylan reaching for God. Mm-hmm. Oh, a little hint here, a little breadcrumb. Yeah. And we pan over and see that he's um, painting Freddy. Yep. And it's kind of this new look for Freddy. Yeah. It's kind of like if Edvard Munch painted Freddy, kind of looking. <laughs> so naturally, she decides to go visit Wes. Talk oh, to him. Sure. That, that's the next breadcrumb in this trail. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where we get some uh, some some big lore drop here, right? From Wes. I think that's a little bit later. Oh yeah, actually, oh. yeah, yeah. But there's a couple things that happen first. Ooh, okay. Because <clears throat> Heather has another dream sequence. Oh yes, yes, yes. With uh, Dylan, he like drops something in the kitchen. He goes down to check on her. He's singing the Freddie song again. And he's got knives taped to his fingers. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Like, Forgot how many that. kids did that, you know, after the first time <laughs> showing this? And he attacks her, but it's just a dream. She wakes up. Um, what's happening here? Okay, so the next morning, or it is morning, and the phone rings, and we get the whole thing with Freddie's tongue coming out. Yeah. Another, and, good, another good throwback. Yeah, and Dylan's foaming at the mouth and and, and freaking out. So eh, she, just just kids being kids, you know. <laughs> sure, this happens all the time. Uh, so Heather takes him to the doctor, and the doctor's examining him, and she's talking about how horror films adversely affect children. And she's like, "You haven't let him watch any of your movies, have you, Mrs. Lingenkamp?" Yeah, this this I'm just say this bitch has a real thing in her craw about horror films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's a stand-in <laughs> for all the you know. MPAA people and shit like that. And all the like uh, parent teacher association, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. action groups and stuff. Yeah, she's thinking Dylan might have schizophrenia. And he's kind of not talking much. He's almost catatonic. And, and doesn't she even suggest kind of like, has there been any like abuse going on in the home? Right. Stuff to you? It's yeah. Like, Do you keep any drugs in the home? <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing? She, she makes some reaches. Mm-hmm. But Heather's like, okay, he wants Rex to protect him. And she's talking about how, you know, it's not very far. She'll be right back. Because she's like, you see that freeway over there? Our home's right past that freeway. Mm-hmm. And Julie's there to watch him in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Oh, we get another nice cameo here, too. Because the nurse oh, that yeah. brings The whole Dylan. time you're thinking, if we've got Bob Shea, where's Lynn Shea? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Especially because yep. she was in the first film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dylan has to take <laughs> some meds, and Lynn Shea's the nurse that brings him out. Which is so funny that Bob got to be himself. Yeah. <laughs> but then she plays a part. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, it's cool. We got to see Lynn Shay, so I'm happy with that. Love Lynn Shay. Yeah. Any film is better for her inclusion. She's great. So on the way there to get Rex, Heather's calling Robert again, but she gets a message saying that he's not at home and they're going to be gone for some time. Yeah. He's just skipped town, man. <laughs> he's on the convention circuit. <laughs> now, this is when she goes to talk to Wes. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's at his swanky mansion up in the hills. 
Do you know originally the original idea in the script of of himself of Wes Craven? He was going to have had cut off his eyelids to stay awake. Whoa! And he was going to be like feverishly writing the script in a van being driven around <laughs> by Michael Berryman. <laughs> that's crazy. That was the original concept. Wow, that, that's a little much, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think he thought it'd be more comfortable if I'm just at home. <laughs> <laughs> no, no weird makeup prosthetics. <laughs> right. Um, sad for the lack of Michael Berryman in there. Yeah, I know. Who Wes had worked with mm-hmm. twice before the Hills Have Eyes films? Yep, I think that's on the other Wes Craven movies. He's so that would have been a fun callback to his career. Yeah, totally. So yeah, she's talking to Wes, and he's talking about like what he's writing about is in his nightmares, uh, like about an ancient entity that can only be captured in a story. And yeah, I'm it, trapped for a while. It's basically like this ancient supernatural entity that kind of feeds on like people's fear and stuff like that, and like like all good evil ancient beings tend to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but and as long as you're telling the story, it, yeah, it keeps the demon at bay. Kind of through a story, you can trap it and keep it kind of locked in the story, mm-hmm. and it won't be a problem. But he says that Freddy is like a real entity. Yeah, and now that the movies are over, he's kind of free to roam. Yeah, when they made Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare. Yep. Ending the story released it to once again plague the world. Yep. And it has adopted the guise of Freddy Krueger since that was the story it had been woven into. Right. Um, whereas and in ages past, it could have been, you know, like, like a demon, it yeah. could have been Dracula, it could have been whatever. But for now, it's Freddy. And keeping to the story it has been like woven into, it's focusing on Heather because that's mm-hmm. that's your final girl. That's yep. That's the enemy. And she's asking, like, what can stop him? And Wes says that there's always, like, a gatekeeper. Someone that can keep him from entering the world. And it's you, Heather. Yeah. You know? It's it's very almost like Buffy. Yeah. Vampire Slayer. Right. You are the chosen one. Yeah. Uh, so, at this point, he's standing by his word processor. And I like this sequence. Uh, because he sees what, what he has typed. And it's their dialogue. Yeah, it's their conversation. Yeah, because <laughs> he's he's asking her if she you know is brave enough to play Heather one or Nancy one more time, and it's all typed out on the word processor. It's cool. Uh, so Heather's doing a little bit of research later on and finds out that sleep deprivation can lead to schizophrenic symptoms. Yes. So Dylan has just not been sleeping. Obviously, because when he sleeps, this thing comes for him. Yeah. Because, again, it's it's woven into the story of Freddy Krueger, so it's trying to follow those rules. Indeed. Um, and she also sees a news report about the two special effects guys. They were found dead. Yep. And their death kind of mysteriously mirrors how they died in the dream. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So that ties that up again as well. Uh, we get another earthquake, and the lights go out, and she's kind of looking around, looking in the closet for something, and Freddy pops out. Yeah. This new Freddy. Uh, what do you think of the makeup? I'm not in love with it. Yeah, it's almost like, it's sort of like, just sort of flesh separating from his skull, more or yeah. less. It's It has that same kind of biomechanical look that the, the hand mm-hmm. does. M- much less the like burn victim sort of deal. Yeah, it's more of a, I guess demonic, for lack of a better word, kind of more generic monster. Um. Almost like a Cenobite. Kind of reminds me of a little bit. I could see the that. Flesh yeah. being pulled apart. Maybe more of like a Hellraiser three one where they got Goofity had like a CD Cenobite. <laughs> right, you know. right. Here, here, it's the Freddy Cenobite. Here's your metal claw Cenobite. 
Uh, I will say, though, uh, fucking dig the trench coat. That's a cool look. Trench coat's a cool look. Yeah. I like that. I like that just fine. And we also didn't mention that his new glove, hand, whatever it is, has like a knife, a blade on a thumb as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, one extra blade. Which apparently Robert England hated because he found that really <laughs> awkward to do anything with. That is true. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. When we think about it, the range of things you do with a hand, and that last one's also a long blade. Yeah. It's it's going to get in the way. Yeah. Huh. So they kind of have a tussle, and uh, he attacks her and cuts her arm, and there's like another aftershock, and he disappears, but she wakes up, and you know she's cut. Her arm yep. is cut. Um, Just like the movie. Yeah. So she runs back to the hospital, and there's Julie there wanting to see Dylan. She's trying to keep Dylan awake because didn't Heather call or she told her, like, yeah, don't let him fall asleep. Uh, yeah, well, she has that line here shortly because she has to leave again. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, there, here's a criticism of this film. There's a lot of weird, like, coming and going. Yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. That doesn't a lot need of, to happen. Kind of unnecessary mm-hmm. scenes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but the doctor who hates horror films, Dr. Hefner is her name. She notices the cuts on Nancy's arm, Heather's arm. Yep. See, oh, I'm doing it now. <laughs> on Heather's arm and asks what happened, you know, while she's treating it. And Heather said, it was the earthquake. And she's like, well, what are you talking about? This, this, these wounds are fresh. The earthquake was like a week ago. It's like, yeah. no, it just happened. She's like, there wasn't any earthquake, you loony bitch. Yeah. <laughs> And Hefner tells Heather that Dylan's been talking about a man in his dreams. And uh, Heather even mentions, like, Freddy's name. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, the, the man from your movies. She ha- he has been watching your movies. This is, this is what's done it. The negative effects of horror films on children. And, and I love this line because Heather comes back saying, uh, every kid knows Freddy. He's like Santa Claus. Yeah. Which is so true. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it, you cannot overestimate how popular Freddy was circa 88, 89. Mm-hmm. It was just insane. It was everywhere. I mean, like I was born in 86, so I was, I didn't know about it right away, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that I knew who Freddy Krueger was before I ever saw a single film. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just like Dracula. I mean, how many younger people have ever seen the movie Dracula, but you know, Dracula when you mm-hmm. see him. And, and you know, the lines too, like the, the, the iconic things that he says. Right. Uh, so Dylan, he's asleep in this oxygen tent. Heather goes into the room and she kind of begins to nod off. But Dylan wakes up and he's talking like in kind of a Freddy voice, saying he's almost there. And he spits up this gob on Heather, very exorcist style. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nurses come in and they're like strapping her down. Well, uh, Dr. Hefner comes in and suddenly she's got Freddy claws. Yeah. She goes to kill Dylan. But no, this is a dream. Heather wakes up. Another fake out. Uh, but Dylan's not there. He's gone for testing somewhere else. Uh, but Julie is with him. And we also see that Heather has a string of hair, gray hair, just like yep. in the first movie. Which still looks good. Still looks great. Perfect. Love it. No notes. And she's running, trying to find Dylan. She's going to this restricted area. <laughs> Another great callback here. <laughs> she knocks down a nurse. And she's like, well, where's your pass? Screw your pass. <laughs> Screw your pass. <laughs> Love it. So nice it had to happen twice. Yep, yep, yep. So this is maybe probably one of the most iconic scenes of the film. 
Yeah, and this is the part where because Heather has to leave again, and she she says to Julie, "Don't let him fall asleep." Mm-hmm. You know, whatever happens, don't fall asleep. Uh, but yes, continue. Iconic how. This is like the moment. This is like the money shot. This is like what you remember from this film, probably if you don't remember it very well, I would say. Yes, which is also a problem for me. Um, so the nurses are wanting to give Dylan a sedative mm-hmm. so he can sleep because that's obviously what they think. Well, let's get him some actual sleep. Right. And then we can sort out how much of this is sleep deprivation and how much of this is like legit trauma that a child has gone through that we need to now report yeah. <laughs> what's going on. And Julie kind of fights with them, mm-hmm. tries to hold them off. Yep. Uh, but they do the old fake out. and uh, They have to, to be breaking some fucking laws uh, Yeah, here, I know. You know? Uh, and while she's distracted with one, the other one sticks them. Right. <laughs> and she desperately tries to keep him awake, but he nods off. Yep. And Freddy emerges into the hospital room. Yep. He is like standing behind Julia. And we get an amazing recreation of that first kill. From, Tina's uh, kill. Yeah, Tina's kill from the original film. Yep. And wow, it's like crazy in this version. It is. Okay, well, how do you feel about it? I like it. I have issues. I think uh, it's never going to match the original. No. Especially because no. I think like where this one's in this like clinical white room that's very bright. Yeah. That yep. gives it a different like yep. tone that's not quite the same. Yep. And I'll go ahead and say it. That's one of my issues with this movie. It is shot so flat. Yeah. Everything is overlit. There's hardly ever any dark sequences. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, some might argue that that's intentional because it's the real world and it's not the movie world. And others might argue that's intentional because it's faster and cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think there's any artistic merit to it. I, I don't either, actually. I, I, mean, I was just, just playing devil's advocate. To, yeah. to I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he starts dragging Julie up just mm-hmm. like, you know, Tina was going up the walls and everything like that. And eviscerates her, man. Yeah. Um, and then Dylan starts sleepwalking and just bolts out of there. Yep. He's wanting to go home. And he knows how to get home because Heather told him. Yeah, it's right across the freeway. She's like, oh, holy shit. Which leads us to, I'm going to say, both one of the most intense scenes conceptually and also one of the worst <sighs> scenes uh, visually. Yeah. Is that fair to say? What what they were wanting to do was very difficult to do back then. Very ambitious. There's a lot of rear... rear <clears throat> there's a lot of rear screen projection... Yes. ...going on. Um, but and, yeah, basically, he's sleepwalking across the interstate. Mm-hmm. And Heather's and, caught up at this point. Right. And she even calls John Saxon yeah. and is like telling him what's going on. Like, he's headed home. Can you go there? You know, in case mm-hmm. he, he gets there and meet him. Um, but yeah, so he's, he's trying to cross this road. So all these cars are like careening, getting out of the way. And Heather go, runs out there trying to catch him and she's like ducking under a truck, Yep, you know, big semi truck. And yeah, the effects aren't the best. <laughs> yeah. So conceptually, like you just imagine this, like your child is crossing the interstate and you're trying to get to them. It's fucking horrifying. It's crazy. You think Miko use would have learned <laughs> to stay out of the fucking road, but no, apparently not. And we even get like a giant Freddy up yeah. in the air, which reminds me of part three mm, yes. when he's the puppeteer mm-hmm. uh, and he like has his claw and he scoops down and even lifts Dylan up at one point yeah. out of harm's way. It's pretty wild. Yeah. 
Uh, it's, it's like he needs Dylan because that's like his conduit. Right. Which made me think also of part, part two where he is possessed the guy and is trying to manifest through him. Yep. And part five. Oh, yep. Where he's possessing Alice's kid. Yep. Uh, maybe some of this is intentional. I don't know. Intentional, it, accidental. It's like poetry. It yeah. rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but God, the visuals here are terrible. I'm just going to... It's not great. Yeah, it, it's it not looks great. awful. I cringe every time I see it. Yeah. Uh, but Dylan does make it across. Yeah. Heather gets to her house to find uh, John Saxon and Dylan there. Uh, she t- She's telling John that Freddie did it. And he's like, yeah, okay, sure. And she calls him dad at one point. Um. Because he kind of gives her a look of like, why'd you call me that? Uh, isn't it the other way around? Is it? I think, calls he, her, I think he calls, calls her Nancy. Nancy. Yeah. Mm. So he calls her Nancy. And yeah, he's asking, why are you calling me John? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because she's That's saying nice. that Freddie did it. And he's like, honey, Freddie's dead. <laughs> you know? And suddenly he's dressed like a cop. He's got like his revolver and everything. And uh, he, he's his character from the first movie. And he gets into his his car, and it's got like you know the police light and everything. And Heather's wardrobe has changed; she's now like wearing pajamas and stuff. And she looks over, and her house has become the yeah. house, fully the house. Yeah, from a Nightmare on Elm Street. This is one of my favorite sequences. I love yeah. this part of the movie. I wish there was more of this. Mm-hmm. This should have been some of the dream sequences. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is her like going back through the movie? I love the idea of the movie overtaking reality and they're like becoming their characters and things like that. Like I've always had this thought really since the first time I saw it. Like if there was a scene where she was like dreaming that she was at the morgue or somewhere and you had uh, her husband like in the body bag, like echoing in the school scene. The first oh, with Tina. Yeah. Uh, so John slash Nancy's dad. Yes. Is driving off. And uh, she goes into Nancy's house. Yeah. Uh, and she's finding uh, little sleeping pills that Dylan has left, like breadcrumbs, because they were talking about Hanson on Great yeah, War earlier. Yeah, because one of the things he says is like, how do they know how to get home? And it was, oh, they left a trail of breadcrumbs. Right. Uh, my question is, why the fuck would they want to get home? Because their parents <laughs> fucking tried to kill them. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she's uh, following the breadcrumbs to Dylan's room, and she finds Rex all tore up. Yep. So she starts taking the sleeping pills so she can fall asleep and go find Dylan. It's a cool shot, too, of, like, the bottom of the bed is like a tunnel. Yeah, she gets under his covers and Mm. stuff. And, yeah, it just keeps going. Yeah. Great visual. Yeah. This, like, whole part is, like, where you see the promise of, like, what this could have been, I think. I agree. Yeah. Because now she's, like, she falls out of this giant Freddy mouth, basically. It's this huge sculpture of Freddy, and she's falling out of his mouth into this kind of ancient ruins hellscape. Yeah, it's like a hellscape because it feels very like Roman. Yeah. But there's like stuff burning for no reason. And yeah. It is that area we see in the opening too. Yeah, there's like actual ruins like from different eras, like mm-hmm. like Etruscan looking stuff and yeah, like Roman, Greek. Yeah, it, it's gnarly. Yeah. And yet at times also it still has that boiler room vibe to it a little bit. Because there's like random like burning areas. Right, right. Uh, so Dylan shows up, but so does Freddy. who starts attacking her. We get our big showdown. Yeah, we get a fight scene. She's like stabbing him in the eye. There's some good callbacks here too, because there's the, there's one there's the one part where he has Dylan, 
and she's coming to save him. And then the ground becomes like jelly, basically. Yeah, she's going and, up the steps. And it's like the stair scene. Now, this is a much better effect than the original stair scene. Yes. You could see like where the porridge was and everything. <laughs> but also, that just adds to the nightmare logic of it. Yeah. You know? Why is it like this? Yeah. Um, and also, you free, see uh, Freddy's hand distend trying mm. to reach Dylan, like his yeah. hands do and when we first see him. And mm. then when he's walking through the alley. This is God. Yeah, classic. Um, so like he grabs Dylan, he's trying to literally eat him, like his jaws yeah. distend like a freaking snake. I think that's a cool visual too. It is, yep. Um, but she comes up and stabs Freddy, and uh, they're near one of those furnaces. Yeah, and he's kind of behind some bars and stuff, and his tongue distends and wraps around Heather. It's pretty gnarly too. Yeah, a lot of sexual imagery here too. Yeah. But uh, and that's something that Wes Craven was talking about, how like Freddie was always sort of like, I mean, I'm, I'm even the line, "I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy." Yeah, there was always this kind of sexual element, and that to goes it. back to that original thing of was he a child killer, yeah, or a child predator, right, or both, or both. Which is one of the few nods I'll give the remake that it actually tried to play with that a little bit, but uh, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Mm, I said about that, the better. <laughs> um. So yeah, like uh, Dylan like stabs Freddy's tongue to the floor. He pulls it away. Freddy's locked in the furnace. Yeah, they shove him in there. They, they shove him in the furnace, and it starts cooking him. And <laughs> we get a very unfortunate morphing effect here. Yes. Well, Freddy's face turns into a very generic demon. Yep. Which I guess it to suggest this is the original entity. Yeah. And his eyes like bulge and pop out. I hate it almost as much as the fucking dream demons yeah. in Freddy's Dead. It's, it's as bad as that. <laughs> it's slightly better because it's not 3D. Right. But yeah, right. it's pretty it's still, bad. It's still bad. Um, the whole place starts to collapse. and They're and, racing to find an exit. Yeah. So they... they well, to get into dream logic moments, like they dive in a pool of water. Right. And that just brings them out. Yeah. So they're back in the real world, in the bed. Another earthquake has happened. Because mm-hmm. their house is trash. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she finds Wes Craven's script with a note on it, um, thanking her for having to get to play Nancy one last time. Mm-hmm. And now Freddy's back where he belongs. Um, Dylan asks, is, is that a story? And and asks her to read it to him, which she does. Yep, she turns the page and starts reading, and she's literally reading the script of the first scene that we saw in the film. Yep. It kind of the story must be told to keep Freddy at bay. Yes, it kind of bookends us back around, and then we get some kind of unfortunate music at the end. It's got this kind of hip hop beat to it, yeah. mixing in with the Elm Street theme. Didn't work for me. It's all right. It's very nineties. <laughs> it's very nineties. Very, very mid. I'm gonna say. Yeah. As the kids say these days. <laughs> very mid. Oh yeah, I'm a cool podcaster. Hey, you are man. Wow. All right, so that is That's the movie. Wes Craven's New Nightmare. <clears throat> Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got any more fun bits of trivia and such? I do actually have a bunch. All right. So let's go back and forth. You hit me with something. Okay, let's let's buckle the fuck up for this. I got some shit too. Um, so I guess the first thing to start is like Freddy, right? Because he's our villain. He's the one this is all about to a degree. Uh, apparently this depiction is much closer to what Wes Craven originally had in mind when he first came up with the idea. Uh, less of the kind of jokey, comic-y side of things, more menacing. Sure, um, it was supposed to be a return to the Dark Freddy. Right. Yeah. Um, however, 
in an interview in 2015, shortly before he died, which again, rest in peace. Yeah, R.I.P. Miss him. Uh, he admitted that he regretted changing his appearance and said that when he thought about it more, it kind of just settled on a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why bother? Hard agree. Hard agree. I think that's one of the detriments of this movie. And he said that was why he always pushed to never change Ghostface's mask in the Scream films. Okay. That's probably the smart choice. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. 100%. Very good. Very good. What do you Um, got? Okay, so... Uh, Miko uses parents told Wes that we've got a trick that can make him cry on cue, but we don't like to do this, but we'll do it. And he's like, and Wes didn't know what it was. He's like, okay, if you think it, sure. You know? <laughs> so their thing was his mom would go away for a while, like leave the, the set. And then his dad would tell him that her mom was dead, yeah. that his mom was dead to get him to start crying. <laughs> Holy shit. That's a little extreme. Yeah, that's a bit much. <laughs> in an interview, Wes said that they would like go out and buy him a Happy Meal after that. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, I've got the actual quote about that TV uh, spot thing they do. Yeah. And that was like based on a real thing. Uh, so this is from Wes talking about it. He says, Robert England and I did an appearance together on a public television show in the San Francisco area. It was about whether these kinds of movies were bad for children or not. There were parents in the audience, and they had brought their kids. When we came out, all the kids leaped to their feet and started chanting, Freddy, Freddy, Freddy. Mm-hmm. I remember looking from the show's host to the parents in back, and they all looked horrified. <laughs> <laughs> kids love monsters, man. That's just yeah, what it, it is. It excites the imagination. Uh, now, this I did not know, and it kind of shocked me. But the cinematographer of this movie was Mark Irwin. Okay, sounds familiar. He should. Mm. He was an early collaborator with David Cronenberg. Oh. He shot Videodrome, Scanners, The Dead Zone, The Fly. That just makes this film sadder. Yes. <laughs> there is no way he was given what he should have gotten yeah. to make this movie. I don't think he was given the time. Um, this, very, this has a very much kind of a 90s light and get away <laughs> uh, sensibility about it. So I was shocked it was a Mark Irwin film because he's he's an excellent cinematographer. Cool. I actually didn't know that either. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna hit you with a few little ones real quick. So, okay. um, when the film starts, it just begins and just goes into it. They said they wanted no opening titles to blur the illusion of whether this is a film, a documentary, or something else. That would be cool. They didn't want it to have the conventional just like, bah, next right, Friday, right. next Nightmare on Elm Street, boom. Uh, there's that. There is the premise of the film, right? Freddy trying to invade the real world mm-hmm. and haunting the actors that are working on a film. That's actually like a premise that they had pitched before. They pitched that for Dream Warriors back in the day, and their inspiration was the movie Return to Horror High. Ah, yes. Uh, but the studio rejected it at the time. They didn't think it was a very good idea, and because it was so close to Return to Horror High, mm. they thought it wouldn't play very well. And then the last little extra bit. Oh, Return to Horror High? Oh, one of George Clooney's first films. Oh, he has a bit part in there. So many big stars got their starts. Oh yeah, in eighties horror. Oh yeah. Uh, the ending credits when they're scrolling through, you'll notice that uh, Robert England is credited as himself, mm-hmm. but then Freddy Krueger is also credited as himself. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's a great throwback to like the old Universal monster films and stuff like that. Yeah, love it. Nice. Um, I'll hit you with a few real quick here. So Craven cites uh, the Roman Polanski movie Repulsion oh, as an inspiration. 
I can see that, with, especially with how Heather's portrayed. Yeah, and the cracking of the walls yeah. and stuff like that. Fucking love that movie, too. Yeah, it's a great, great movie. If you have not seen Repulsion, fucking watch it. Um, Hefner, Dr. Hefner, was the name of someone at the NPAA <laughs> that gave Craven all sorts of grief. Oh, I knew it. Um, uh, both Miko and Wes had different uh, Rex props in their homes. Ooh. That's cool. Yeah, they had kept that. I think uh, uh, Miko had the one with the red stitches. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, quick one. KNB did the effects. Classic. Yep. Can't go wrong with them. Which, in general, most of the actual like gore effects, I think, are pretty good. <sighs> They're too few and far between for me, though. Well, this movie's... When we get into our final thoughts, I have some criticisms I'm going to lay down here. All right, that, that's definitely one of them. Nice. Uh, you got anything else? I do. Uh, according to Robert England, this was his favorite of the Elm Street films. I could see him saying that. This one has some uh, kind of depth to it in a yeah, way. Yeah, and he gets to play himself and a different Freddy, so he yeah. probably found it kind of find them challenging. Um, <laughs> Pulp Fiction opened the same weekend as this. <laughs> Probably had something to do with the box office, I bet. Yes, because uh, it was made on an $8 million budget, which really wasn't a lot. Uh, but it only made about $20 million at the box office, making it the poorest performing of all the Elm Street films. Which is sad that it did worse than Freddy's Dead. Because that movie is just hot garbage, yo. It is. <laughs> oh, man. It really is. Okay, that's all my trivia. Okay, I got a few more. Um, The original title for this film was going to be A Nightmare on Elm Street 7, The Ascension. It's a very weak title. Um, Apparently, old Bob Shea got gun-shy about it, and he thought if they put the 7 there, that people would be like, oh my god, another one. Another one after the last one. Bob Shea's a smart man. And he said, why don't we give it a different name? Why don't we throw Wes's name up there, let people know that this is something different. It's also a meta title. Yeah. Because not only is it Wes Craven's new nightmare film, but it's supposed to be about Wes Craven's new nightmare. So yeah. it works on multiple levels. It's a great title. Uh, let's see. I got a little more here. Um, there was going to be a scene with Robert England having a Freddy nightmare of his own. And it was going to be that he was stuck in a spider web. And then Freddy appeared as like a giant spider. Oh, man. It was going to come down and try to like get him. That'd be awesome. Um. They thought it was a little totally off from the rest of the film because it's kind of more of like one of his classic Freddy kills, right? Where he does like a dream kill. Which we needed in this movie, and I will get to that too. Yeah. But at the time, they were like, well, this this isn't that Freddy, so we can't right. really do that. Uh, but, I, I can see that. Yeah, okay. Um, they had some other people they thought about for the role of Julie, the babysitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were thinking about Winona Ryder or Drew Barrymore. Uh, they were both considered. Uh, they both turned it down because they had other projects going on and they just had to make a choice. Hmm. And they went with the other project. Interesting. Um, apparently, Winona Ryder had auditioned to be Kristen in Dream Warriors. Oh, wow. And I guess either Barrymore had tried out for some stuff that Wes was doing or he had seen her in other stuff. And then that was why he picked her for Scream for the mm. intro. Nice. Uh, and this is just a final little throwback type thing. Um, the way they kill Freddy in this film, right? He's in the furnace and they burn him alive. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a callback to his original death that led him to become this right. dream demon of a sorts. Death by fire, sure. Where the parents burned him alive. So, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, 
Would you like to go first? Yeah, I think I can go first. So uh, this is a movie I'm very mixed on because I feel like, again, there's parts of it that are like five-star perfect, and then there's parts that I'm just like, man, what is going on? Yeah. Uh, so some of the effect work at times is a little questionable. That highway scene, uh, I really, I love the idea of it, but I hate the way it's executed. Yeah, anything that's not like in-camera or practical effect looks kind of weak in this movie. Yeah. Um... I agree with you that like it's really flat visually a lot of the time. Yeah. Like the best it looks is that final climax. Right. And there needed to be more of that. Like, you know, it's the same thing. Like in the other films, they go to the boiler room a few times mm-hmm. in the buildup. I think we, like we needed like a, that. And that's really my biggest criticism on the film is like when it's good, it is so good and it's so engaging. And this idea of like trapping a demon and a story and channeling it through Freddy, that's so cool and so high concept. It's very smart. I love it. And I love the way that the fiction starts to bleed into the real world mm-hmm. and they get crisscrossed. And it's all about Heather like playing Nancy again to like retell the story one more time to like keep that cycle going, which is kind of maybe the justification in some like meta way for like why are there horror sequels? It's like the story needs to be told for a new generation. Right. And I think oh. also that like uh, the movie Cabin in the Woods may have piggybacked on this a little oh, bit. For sure, yeah. Which makes it even more meta because that whole movie is about pleasing horror <laughs> audiences. Right. You know, which it could be read that this is the same way. You know? yeah, yeah, for sure. We have to appease this demon, but we also have to, have to appease <laughs> these horror <laughs> fans. And we have to appease these shareholders <laughs> who want more money. <laughs> uh, Wes is just a little more subtle, I think, in his delivery. Yes. Um. And then, like, uh, so on an idea, like, you know, we're talking about movies about making movies. And I think, like, that's the crux of, like, why this film is interesting. Because it's like, why make this sequel? And it's like, well, they came at it with a new angle, which is interesting and clever. And I think it's good for Wes, because I think he does everything in the right way, where it's very subtle. And you think about it, if he's not, like, in your face shouting it at you. But it's like, well, like, why do we tell these stories? Why, why does horror exist anyways? And it's like, in a way, it kind of, like, exercises us of our demons. Mm. That's kind of always the takeaway I have when I finish this film, like through, through these stories, through experiencing them, whether you're making them and sharing them or whether you're the person consuming it and watching it and experiencing it, it it's kind of like, you know, like a flood valve and it lets, it lets shit out. It lets you process things. It's like, we've talked about in the past, like it lets you think through things, process things, maybe tackle with heavier things like, like, like the death of a loved one or things like that. that like, is hard to approach and hard to think about, but mm through this movie, you can engage with it in a safe way where you can like tackle that, come at it, meet it. And then at the end of the day, it's still just a movie and you can walk away and maybe have gained something or learned something or reflected on yourself or something like that. So I think that's super cool. And that's super admirable. On the other hand, I think a lot of this movie is just really fucking dull. Like it's so it's very slow. Yeah. There's a lot of like they repeat the same things where it's like Heather's here, she's going here, she's yeah. going back here, she's going back here. Right. She's going to Dylan, she's going back to a lot from, of padding. away from Dylan. It's a lot of padding. And I think like that's where it falters for me because like I'll just admit this on air. When I rewatched this, I fell asleep and woke up during the credits and then had to go back and rewatch like <laughs> half the movie. If only you had a Freddy nightmare while you were asleep. That would have made it perfect. But no, it I mean it is really dull and it's like I I don't know I, I mean I'm not a great director so it's not like i could tell you how to fix this but that's every time i watch it that's my experience i'm like the good parts are so good but they're broken up by these long dull passages that Mm -hmm. they need something else going on or more punch up more like 
like we get all the ominous buildup, right? The earthquakes and everything else, but it's like I don't know. To me, it's like not enough in yeah. a way, almost. It's like, okay, cool, but what what else is going on? Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so that that's always what's kind of plagued this one for me. And I, I, I see people say it's a masterpiece. I see people say it's like the best sequel. I can respect that, but for me, it just never hits that point because like there's so much that drags it down at the same time. Yeah. So in the end, I fall right at a three on this one. A three. Okay. I think it's slightly better than average just because of the concept and the premise and the meta nature. Yeah. I, I give it that extra bit for Wes just because that's a brilliant stroke and he, he kind of tossed it out there first in a lot of ways. Cool. Nice. All right. Where are you at? Yeah, I share a lot of the same criticisms. Um, my biggest, one of my biggest problems is that it, it is very boring at times. <laughs> yeah. It's visually boring, mm. which an Elm Street movie should not be. That was always their saving grace. They were <laughs> right. always kind of visually inventive. There was always something interesting happening, at least when Freddy showed up. Um, and, and that's like the Italian guys, right? Like Giallo's. How many of those are so fucking dull? But like, there's a crazy camera angle. Yeah. And half the screen is blue and half the screen is red. And <laughs> right. you're like, whoa. There's something interesting going on yeah. there. There's depth to the screen or something. Mm. And this is just that flat 90s boring TV look. You know, oh, I can't stand it. And that's one of my biggest problems with 90s horror films. They all kind of look like this, with very few exceptions. Um, uh, it's... <clears throat> I wanted more dream-type sequences. I wanted more actual kind of Freddy carnage and, okay. and Freddy action. For sure. Um, again, I love that scene where, like, John Saxon's becoming his character and stuff. Yes. I, I would have loved more of that. That's so endearing. Yeah. Um, or even if like Robert England was possessed by Freddy and he like became Freddy or something. I don't know. Or if they did the part two thing, but with Robert England, where like Freddy like spawns. Yeah, out yeah, of yeah. Them. That would yeah. be fun. Maybe that would have been too far for them. I don't know. But it's also <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street movie and it needs to go far. Yeah. I think uh, that's the thing. Like you can do like the buildup, but then at a point there has to be like a f- switch that gets flipped. And yeah. then there's not enough nightmare in this nightmare for me. Mm hmm. Um, the Freddy look is problematic. I kind of like the trench coat. And I think that is partially based, as Freddy Krueger was partially based, but the trench coat kind of completes it on an event that happened in Wes's childhood that really scared him. Do you know this story? I do, but please share it, because if no one's ever heard this, they need to. It's like he and his brother were young, and they were home alone. And Wes is just so like looking out the window one night, right? And he sees... uh, this old who he assumed he assumed to be like a homeless man mm-hmm. out kind of rummaging in the trash cans and stuff like that. <laughs> and Wes is just sort of watching him, you know, just looking at him from a window. And and the figure's like wearing like a trench coat and like a hat too, I believe. And he kind of stopped and he just looked over directly at Wes up in his window. Like he knew he was being watched. And Wes is like, oh shit, you know, and he runs away from the window and tells his brother, and they're like, there's a dude out there. And they have their lights off and they're like approaching the door of the window to look out. And suddenly it's that guy up right up against the window looking in at them, you know, like trying to scare them and stuff. And that stuck Wild. with Wes because he's like, what kind of a freak would go try to scare little kids like that? You know? Yeah. Um, so the trench coat look is cool. I'm not really a big fan of makeup. Mm. Although the, the glove does look cool. The hand looks cool. Yeah. For sure. It That's reminds me part. actually of the original illustration on the poster, which oh, looks yeah. nothing like in the actual movie. That's kind of like a, a bony hand that still has some meat on it. And yeah. then the metal parts like graft over top. And it's kind of the design they would use throughout all the film posters. Yeah. Um, hmm. 
it's I love the premise. It's a very smart premise. It's very innovative, but I think it's almost it kind of gets in its own way with its cleverness. Yeah, you know, um, like it doesn't really commit. Like it, it can't get past its own premise in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, although it's a hoot seeing people playing themselves. Oh yeah, for I sure. Lo- I love that. Uh, yeah, at the end, it just doesn't. It doesn't come together. It doesn't. It doesn't really feel like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. In mm-hmm. it, so then what is it? You know, uh, it's some weird like phantom in between place. Yeah, because then if we bring Scream into the discussion, I think that's where he took this idea and like perfected it and made it lean and mean. Right, and I will give the first. I mean, everyone knows I'm not a big Scream right. fan, but I will give the first movie some credit, especially those first 15 minutes, mm-hmm. which is some of the best stuff Wes Craven's ever done. Um. So yeah, definitely. This is definitely a dry run for Scream. Uh, yeah. At the end of the day, this movie just doesn't work that well for me. It didn't when I first saw it. I mean, is it better than Freddy's Dead? Fuck yes. <laughs> a fungal infection is better than Freddy's Dead. I'd rather rewatch the remake than Freddy's Dead, <laughs> to be honest. Ooh, let's not go that far. I would. I honestly, uh, honest to God, I don't know if I would. Mm, I can't say that. Um. So this was better than that, but like I mentioned before, this also came out the same weekend as Pulp Fiction. <laughs> so, uh, <sighs> um, anyway, not like it could really could be fairly compared to Pulp Fiction or two different things. Um, totally. But yeah, I'm coming down. I, to me, this is an average film. I'm at two and a half stars. So we're, we're pretty close. Yeah, th- there's a lot to like in it, but there's also, it just didn't quite, they did, I think New Line did not want to spend the money on it. And yeah. take the time it needed. They were probably pushing to get it out for that tenth anniversary, mm-hmm. and it just it doesn't look as good as it could look. And that's one of my issues with Wes Craven in general. Like the man himself, I I, I adore him. I think he I think he's a genius. He's a great yeah. guy. I think he seemed like a genuinely sweet, thoughtful, kind person. And he made some very great movies, but he also made some very <laughs> bad movies. I mean, just <laughs> rushed. Not well thought out. I'm thinking like Deadly Friend and things like that mm-hmm. here. You know, just things to get out to make a buck. Oh, which here's a, here's a correction for last time. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned a film that we thought was his last film last time. I forget what it was. A it was soul to Take or something uh, like that. See No Evil, I think is what we said. But yeah, My Soul to Take was the one we were yeah. thinking of. Right, yeah. Uh, which is also equally a bland, <laughs> forgettable film. Never saw that. <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to watch it. I heard how bad it was. I'm pretty keen on Red Eye. You know, I never saw that either. It's pretty good. It, it just got a re-release too, like a boutique. Blu-ray I do like one. Killian Murphy. Maybe I should watch it sometime. Yeah, not yeah. not as bad as people think it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you know, kind of an average film, but I'm glad it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a. I think there's enough worthwhile to watch and enjoy it, and also to kind of see where it goes into the whole Scream franchise too, where Wes kind of took that idea. Yeah. It's pretty much the meta horror film perfected. <laughs> Be that for good or ill. You know, it's however you feel about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think of even some of the stuff we've watched this year that we've loved. Um, they kind of owe back. Sure. Right here to a new nightmare. Yeah. <sighs> so here's what I want to end on. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to end on a downer note. No, let's not do that. Tell me. I have two questions for you. Okay. Tell me. Do I like scary movies? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Who's the killer in Friday the 13th? <laughs> Jason. It was Jason. Wrong. <laughs> um, no. What, what is your favorite Nightmare on Elm Street film? 
Oh man! And let, let's just say let's just not in, let's say sequel. Let's say sequel because it's boring if we include the first one. Because okay, most people are going to say the first okay. one. Okay, um, that's still hard for me. Let's eliminate that temptation. It's still hard because I think on a technical like real level, mm-hmm. three Dream Warriors. On a like personal Jason level. Uh, on a nostalgia <laughs> fast food MTV. Part four. <laughs> it just depends which mood I'm in, you know? Okay, we're exactly the same then. Because I would say my personal favorite is part four, the Dream Master. Yeah. Love it. Love everything about it. Especially Lisa Wilcox. You have no Ooh. idea how many times I saw that movie um, as a teenager. If I was going to say what I think is objectively the best sequel, probably Dream Master, the third one. Yeah, I think that's like the best made one. But Dream Warriors, third one. Oh, yeah, Dream Warriors. Yeah. <laughs> I subconsciously said Dream Master. Uh, you're going back to Dream Master. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to say and part three is where Freddie really became a yeah. pop culture phenomena. Yeah. That's and, where it was the iconic. And it's that line. It's that one line that really cemented it. <laughs> Welcome to primetime bitch. That is yeah. the moment that Freddie became a pop culture icon. And look where we are now where you have stuff like Rick and Morty and they do like scary Terry the parody. <laughs> Gosh, you're says bitch a lot. <laughs> um, I will say though, I, I do think part two. Freddy's Revenge. I think there's a lot to love there that gets overlooked. I recently rewatched that, and yeah, it's it. it the last 15 minutes are kind of a slog. It needed a bit punchier <laughs> ending, although the very very end on the bus is cool. Yeah. Oh man, love that. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's an underappreciated. I think it's getting reevaluated. Yeah, lately. it is. Especially with that documentary too that yeah. came out about it. Right. Which is excellent too. If you want some companion um, stuff, Scream to watch. Queen. Right. Yes. The, yeah. It's very good. Very good. Uh, there's no way I believe the director had no clue what was going on there because. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> it's pretty. I can see general audiences not. Yeah, but like the screenwriter definitely knew, and uh, the the lead because he clearly, himself was gay. At the clearly, time, he got he it. He got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's one. The other question is, mm-hmm. uh, what is your favorite Wes Craven film? Wow. Um, and again, as you said, it's quite varied that you can you can go with. It is. I mean, I, I want to say Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. But I also think that I mean, his early films had such an effect. They were so much more drive-in seventies. Mm-hmm. Talking about Last House on the Left or like The Hills Have Eyes. Exactly, both iconic. Exactly, those have a, also have kind of a lasting legacy. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, a lot of the stuff he's made really like other films owe a ton back to him. Yeah. And those are by no means his technically best films, no. but man, they stick with you, especially less house on the left, you know, for sure. Um, but I think overall I, w- I would have to say Elm street is his masterpiece. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to give you a weird swing. Um, I think my favorite is 1988, the serpent and the rainbow. Wow. Okay. Which is a, a very weird kind of based on a, it's actually like a nonfiction book, right? About mm-hmm. like Haiti and the actual original, like uh, uh, Wade Davis, I think yeah. it was anthropologist uh, about like the whole like zombie phenomenon and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, really well done film, really haunting. And I like the way that it mixes like actual historical stuff in with this like scary story yeah. at the core. Yeah, Bill Pullman, he's very likable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was a fun movie. I hadn't seen that in ages either. I feel like it goes forgotten, and I picked it up on the Blu-ray, and man, yeah. yeah. Just, oof, so good. I'll have to go watch it sometime. Worth the watch, but uh, tense up there at the one scene. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. That'll stick with you for a while. Yes, it will. Well, that brings us to the end 
of both this episode, this block, and this mm-hmm. year. This is our last episode for the year. Been a wild one. Yeah. I'm sure it'll get wilder next year, too. I hope so. Um, The next time you get back with us, we will be talking about a listener episode, because that's how we do things, and that's yep. what's going to spill into the next year. Yep. And we are going to be going a wild departure from what we've been on. Just staying in the 90s, though. I'm going to slide it back a little bit to 91. And we are going to check out, directed by Terry Gilliam, which I think is the first time we're ever going to talk about that, too. Strangely enough, yes. Yep. Uh, the Fisher King. Mm. Robin Williams. Uh, oh, my God. Who else is in that? Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges, that's right. Yeah. The dude himself. The dude. Well, we haven't had a Robin Williams movie either. No. Yeah, it's going to be a bunch of firsts that we're checking off. Yeah. Uh, this came up to us from my friend Daniel, who mm. took me to my first drive-in experience. So thank you, man, for this. Nice. I've never seen it. I knew it was going to come up, so I went ahead and blind bought it in the Criterion sale. Ooh. So. Okay. Uh, I have seen this. I saw it when it came out. Mm. So I saw everything back then. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'll go ahead and give you this little bit that it, it, it did stick with me. Mm. There's a couple of scenes that really affected me for a while. Interesting. And Terry Gilliam tends to do that. Even with his more fun stuff, there's things that always kind of stick with you. Oh, yeah. So we'll explore that and talk all about that next time. In the new year. That's right. Otherwise, um, we'll probably drop a little bonus episode at the end of the year like we tend to do. A little yeah. special, a little short thing, just to recap in the year. Like you do. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, we'll see everyone in the new year to check out a listener film and start us off right. And then we'll talk about where we're going from there. Yeah. Otherwise, keep sending us listener episodes. You can hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Email us at genreexposure at gmail.com. Um, tell us what you've been watching, what you think is cool. I, I know in that little recap episode, we're probably going to talk about film discovery. So let us know films that you've watched this year for the first time, Ooh, new yeah. or old. There you go. That you think are pretty groovy. Something we should check out. Something you were digging. Yeah. Maybe something we've missed we need to circle back for and check out ourselves. Yeah, and what's your favorite Wes Craven movie? Yes. What's your least favorite Wes Craven movie? (laughs) (laughs) And who wants to come to my TED Talk about why Cursed isn't that bad? (laughs) But it's still pretty bad. I'm honest. I'm not going to swing that hard for it. No, no. Even Christina Ricci can't save that. (sighs) She can save a lot, though. Mm. And that's how we're going to end this year. So, <laughs> lots of love for Christina Ricci here at Genre Exposure. Right. And all that being said, we'll see you next year. Bye, everyone. Take care. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening